There is a library that exists at the nexus where all other universes collide. Inevitably, things wind up there by mistake. Books, artifacts, people. This is the place where things from all universes end up when they get lost. This is the Eternity Archives. everyone, welcome to the Eternity Archives, an actual play podcast where we take on the role of archivists working for an interdimensional library that catalogs and protects the fabric of reality. In this chapter, we're going to be playing Wild Sea, a game that I am personally very excited about. But first, the necessary introductions. My name is Dorka, my pronouns are she, her, and I play Zen, the Rotilian warrior princess currently experiencing a crisis of morality. And these are my lovely co-hosts. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Ziva. My pronouns are she, her, and I play Linda, the uh, middle-aged human office lady, the non-conventional hero who, one way or another, is going to be friends with everybody because then she doesn't have to think about what happened in the last arc. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, I think we're all experiencing a crisis morality. Um, Hey, everyone. My name is Bappy. My pronouns are they, them. I play Real Day Jaquel, who is uh, usually already a sad tiefling baby, but is probably a little bit sadder now. Hopefully that won't last, but you know, we'll see. The power of friendship can prevail through most things, I think. Let's hope so. (laughs) So now I'd like to introduce our guest for this arc, Alex Penland. Alex is, like Bappy and Ziva, a longtime friend of mine. We met in high school and bonded over our shared love of scuba diving and marine life. Uh, I think our first conversation was about how some of the fish in my aquarium were terrorizing each other, and that did it for them, I guess. Alex is a writer, and part of the reason I wanted to do this game with them was just because of all of their experiences with weird and fantastical worlds like the one in Wild Sea, but I'll let you hear the rest of the introduction from them. So Alex, tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about the archivist character you'll be playing. Okay, so hi, I'm Alex Penland, and my pronouns are they, them. When I say I'm a writer, I mean I moved to Scotland, Edinburgh, a couple years ago to get a PhD in creative writing, and it is pretty much what I do full-time. I grew up running around the Smithsonian Museums. My thesis is a feminist steampunk novel set in classical Greece. And I'm currently trying to find an agent for a deconstructed portal fantasy. If you want to find me online, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Alex Penname, P-E-N-N-A-M-E. And you can get updates through my newsletter at www.alexpenland.com. That's Alex Penland, pen like what you white with, land like what you walk on. Uh, newsletter subscribers also get access to the secret homepage, which is like behind the scenes stuff about published stories and poems. And I basically do a lot of research, which never makes it onto the page. So I needed some place to put it. <laughs> Alex is much cooler than the rest of us. <laughs> Alex is so cool. Yeah, I. Why aren't we playing a game in feminist steampunk ancient Greece? Please write that game, Alex, and then come back on the podcast. <laughs> if you want to, we absolutely can. Like, I have so much that's not making it into the book, and it's got like ancient automatons and all sorts of crazy politics like it would be fantastic to play around there a little bit well just saying uh i'm I will totally play a game <laughs> a game in that universe once that's published we'll do the licensed rpg for it 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you just need to find like someone to give all your notes to, like a partner, and they can consolidate all that information into like a game book. Listen, if anybody <laughs> is volunteering, I will happily accept that. There is so much. <laughs> uh, anyways, today I'm playing Issa, who is the daughter of a mad scientist who she was pretty close with her father before he accidentally blew up their house and left her for dead. So now he's a dimension hopping and he is of dubious sanity at the moment. Issa is not sure if she would like when she eventually catches him. She's not sure if she's going to hug him or punch him in the face. Like it's, it's about a 50 50 shot during all of her travels. She came across the library and realized that as an archivist, it's a lot easier to like drop in places rather than getting to a new place and then having to research and figure out like, what are the rules here? How do I end up going somewhere else? And this way she can just like sort of hop in and out and do her job, but also look for her father on the side. But she's also kind of new here. Like if this isn't her first mission, it's like maybe her second or her third. So she hasn't realized yet that the library might not let her leave. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, as always, let's go ahead and start this off with an icebreaker topic. Wild Sea is, at its core, a post-apocalyptic game that takes place on a future Earth after a global catastrophe. So what is everyone's favorite post-apocalyptic fiction? For me, it's The Stand by Stephen King. For the 10 people out there who have never heard of it, it's about a super virus that wipes out 99.9% of the world. It uh, hits a little different during COVID times, but The Stand is my absolute favorite single standalone novel, and probably the book I've reread more than any other. There's just, like, so much humanity in the characters as they struggle to survive after the end, and the stakes are so high. It has a lot of, like, religious themes that don't really vibe with me as much now as they used to, but the prose is so good. It's some of the best out there, and it just really gets to me. Would you say the prose is one of the pros? (laughs) I'm not talking to you. How about you tell us in your answer, Fabi? Okay, so I actually really love post-apocalyptic fiction. Um, It's one of my favorite genres. I love that grimdark shit. I don't think that surprises anyone. Uh, But it was actually really hard for me to figure out because a lot of it also just makes me really mad. I definitely settled on several that I absolutely hated before I settled on the one I I liked. And my favorite is actually a free novel called Karen Docks at Daylight. That's Charon, like the Greek mythology guy, not Karen as in like someone who's who wants to speak to your manager. <laughs> but yeah, so it's a post-apocalyptic book and it's kind of like a zombie-like world. They're not exactly zombies, um, but it's a slow burn, enemies to lovers, sapphic book. Uh, it's free. You can find it online for free. It's written by uh, Zoe Reed, which is his pen name. And he just writes very excellent stuff. And you should definitely check it out. It's free. It's like 400,000 words. And like, I don't usually reread things. And I haven't read this entire book because it's a very long book. But I've definitely like found favorite passages and just like reread them over and over again because it's just like, it's good. It's good stuff. It's great. And there's there's lots of like, not lots, but there's fan art for her, And he's even written like high school AU one shots and stuff. Definitely check it out. You don't lose anything except a little bit of time, but you gain back tenfold in the feels. <laughs> also, I hate Danganronpa. That's the one I hate the most. <laughs> 
So my favorite post-apocalyptic thing, um, this is like a really basic answer, but it is, it's Fallout. I have such a soft spot in my heart for Fallout. Fallout 3 was like one of the first like grown-up video games that I bought myself and played. Oh, same. <laughs> and it takes place in DC, which is where I, I grew up near there. And so some of those moments of like stumbling around ruins and finding real places that I had been in real life was like, like an unbelievable experience. And I also just love like 50s and 60s kitsch Americana. I could flip through like old cookbooks and ads like all day. I just love like the design of that era. And so like all of those things combined, just give it like a really big soft spot in my heart. I know that that's kind of like a basic answer, but I just really like Fallout. Fallout? is so good though like it's really good and i know that like like the bethesda era fallout is controversial but i love it and you can't make me stop loving it and that this was uh, like a hard question for me to answer because i also really love post-apocalyptic stuff especially weird post-apocalyptic stuff and so i could probably talk all day about the post-apocalyptic stuff i love but if i had to choose one answer it would be fallout Yeah, Fallout 3, I very specifically remember it because it was my high school graduation gift that I picked out for myself. And I usually don't beat video games, but I definitely beat Fallout 3 and I even started a new save file. But then I got scared because of the communist Chinese zombies for some reason. I don't know why. (laughs) It's like there are much scarier things in Fallout 3 than Chinese communist zombies. But for some reason, that is just like what made me like, no, I can't do this anymore. Uh, But yeah, no, I love and support your answer. Thank you. I just remember like playing Fallout 3 and walking into like the Falls Church metro station and being like, oh. Yeah. Hey, I go there every other week. (laughs) I know this place. (laughs) Uh, Fallout 3 hits different if you grow up around DC. Um, It's a really great game otherwise, but uh, but yeah, it definitely hits different if you're from there and you're like, oh. (laughs) So Alex, what's your favorite? Okay, so I'm going to go like completely off the rails and say Adventure Time is my favorite post-apocalyptic fiction, mostly because I really love how the world building is like sort of slow burn displayed as you watch the show, because it's just, it's the goofiest freaking stoner show in the world. It's amazing. But it also like, you have these moments where you have, you know, Finn just like running around and doing goofy kid stuff. And then all of a sudden you realize he's like standing on the wreckage of the world that we know. And it's never something that's really directly explained. Like you pick up little bits and pieces over the course of, you know, the entire 10 seasons of the show. And I just think it's really well done. I also love post-apocalyptic fiction. Like my deconstructed portal fantasy is a post-apocalyptic fantasy novel. Like that's where it's all set. But for some reason, I have never seen anything that really displays the aftermath of the apocalypse quite so fluidly and so clearly as a way it is an adventure time of all things absolutely love it yeah I don't like I just think things where it's like it's kind of a grim setting but it's also like super light like I like that duality in fiction so Adventure Time is like very yeah it does it just does that very well um and I respect respect for the uh setting and whatnot I love like sort of stuff where it's very, very lighthearted. And then you have these intensely dark moments that are just so much more poignant for the setting and the tone of what the the world that they're in. Yeah, we could talk about this like for an entire episode, I feel like I know. But, (laughs) but unfortunately, that's not why we're here. Fortunately, we are here to play Wild Sea. So let's get into it. Wild Sea is written and created by Felix Isaacs and published by Mythopoeia Games. The game was launched and funded on Kickstarter in November of 2020, which is how I heard about it. 
I backed it immediately and I've been following it ever since. It's an incredibly creative game with awesome lore and some really cool mechanics I've never seen in any other game. It's a newer game and it's still in playtesting, so the rules and details are going to be unfamiliar to most of you and might not stay the same indefinitely. If you want to skip the discussion and just go right ahead to character creation, that starts at about 56 minutes. Or if you want to skip all the way to play, that starts at about one hour and five seconds. So the first thing we need to talk about with Wild Sea is the lore and the setting. I feel like some games like Dungeons and Dragons are designed in such a way that the setting doesn't really matter. Like, I've only ever played like one Dungeons and Dragons game in the official Dungeons and Dragons Forgotten Realms setting. Most of the Dungeons and Dragons games I've played have been completely homebrew. Wild Sea does not feel like that. In Wild Sea, the setting is really part of the draw. There's a lot to it, but I'll just give you a real quick overview. The main concept of Wild Sea is that sometime on Earth, a massive growth event occurred called the Verdancy, which was basically a incredibly quick growth of trees and greenery that overtook everything, the entire world. So now like actual solid ground that pokes up above the canopy is incredibly rare. Only like the highest mountaintops still exist. And people travel across the wild sea, the canopy of trees on ships, usually driven by chainsaws that have to cut their ways across dense treetop waves that are constantly growing and regrowing. That's so fucking cool. Yeah. <laughs> Land is scarce and valuable. Plant growth is rampant. And everything underneath the canopy is strange and dangerous and corrupting. It's designed to be low magic, but very high weirdness. Like, there are still humans, but the humans that are remaining have evolved to be, like, much more sturdy and durable and more fit for this world, obviously. But there are also races of people that are different. Uh, there are the ectus, which are just living cactuses that come in so many different shapes and sizes. There are the gao, which are fungus. They're living mushrooms. The coolest thing I've ever heard. The Celecrae are a hive mind of spiders. So each individual is actually thousands of spiders that have <laughs> basically spun themselves into a human form. It's horrifying, but it's really cool. I am thousands of spiders. I was literally in a just going to make that joke. <laughs> 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 oh god, what what if we're thousands of spiders in two trench coats? <laughs> yeah, not a great game for people with arachnophobia. You can just retcon them out. <laughs> and there's even a race of people that are made of the souls of wrecked ships that have created a body of shattered husks of ship parts around them. That that is also literally a Pokemon. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, there are a couple others, but I don't want to spend too much time talking about the lore right now. Um, it's incredibly cool. Like, this is one of the only rule books I've read, like, cover to cover my first time through. And part of that is just because the lore is so immersive and entertaining. Yeah, it's amazing. When I was going through this book, I kept stopping to tell my partner about, like, whatever the weirdest thing that I had recently read was, because every single thing in here is amazing like you could absolutely play a thousand spiders in a trench coat and that's like an acceptable part of the lore (laughs) and the more we talk about the lore the more you'll hear really amazing stuff I think my favorite thing so far about the lore, I mean, you know, besides just the general concept of it, is like in a lot of post-apocalyptic fiction, it's usually like everything dies, everything is horrible, there's some horrible heat death of the earth, or zombies are killing everything, or a super virus is killing everything, or everything freezes, you know, over, and everyone, everything sucks, and it's just like, while it introduces this like adversity to life, but it's not because everything dies. If anything, it's because everything is living. It's because the earth is just like, fuck this. This is mine again. And it's just like, I don't know, when you take the narrative a little bit differently from how post-apocalyptic fiction is usually presented, you can do so many more interesting things with it. Like with Alex mentioned with like Adventure Time, where that, you know, spoiler for Adventure Time, but like, you know, it took place after like a nuclear war. But then it kind of like went into a different wacky, crazy, colorful direction. There actually are a lot of parallels between this and Adventure Time, thinking about it now. It's like, I think this is much, much weirder, but... There's that sort of sense of, like, it's not so much adversity to life, but adversity to life as we know it, where it's not so much like it's an apocalypse. It's very clearly an apocalypse, as in everything that we know has ended. It is done. It is gone. It is unrecognizable. But it is also very much that not everything is gone. Like, it's not that barren barren wasteland. It's just this huge change. Yeah. Yeah. Like a lot of post-apocalyptic fiction is like, okay, all the humans have died except for a few. How are they going to get back to living life as it was? And it's always about like retaining your humanity and all this stuff. But like, you know, with Adventure Time and I feel like Wild Sea, it's not about returning back to what once was. It's creating something new. And I I think post-apocalyptic fiction that kind of goes in that direction. I don't know. It's it's refreshing, I think. You know, it's like maybe things should change. Maybe things should maybe we should adapt and make things better and not go back to this old way of life. And I just think it's very cool how like, you know, in this time where we're basically like killing the earth and killing the environment, it's very cool to see this world where like, no, instead things went the other way and the earth got us. Yeah. Yeah, I I would love it if trees just started sprouting out of the fucking earth and just like, like rebuilt itself. That'd be great. (laughs) That would solve a lot of our problems. That is the cool thing about Wild Sea is I would 100% go to this world. Yeah. Like, it is weird. It is crazy. But there's not a lot of post-apocalyptic worlds that I would be like, yeah, I'm down to live here. But I would be down to live here. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to uh, to take you there. I just want to say that this whole discussion was so much more intelligent than the stupid joke I was going to make about the happening. So... <laughs> All right. So with a system like this, with such a rich and unusual setting, obviously a large part of this game is focused on exploration. In addition to your characters, you also get a ship. Uh, The shipbuilding is a whole process. Uh, You design what your ship looks like and how it travels across the trees. We're going to get into that in more detail later, but that is just important to keep in mind. 
And also, there's a lot of resource management in this game, like things that help you repair your gear, your equipment, your ship, materials and plants and resources that you can cook into meals to give yourself advantages. And not a lot of that is specifically written out like it might be in a game like Dungeons and Dragons. It's more like you get the resources and you you get to decide what to do with them in a roleplay sense. This game is very, very roleplay focused. Like I would say there are more hard mechanical rules in this than a game like Monster of the Week and certainly Henshin. But many of those rules are specifically guided by player input and roleplay. And there's also a lot of collaboration in this game, especially when you're exploring between the player and the GM. There are lots of opportunities for the players to be like, you know what? I have this sort of rumor in my list of resources that I have, and I'm going to impose this on the scene and let me tell you how. And that makes a game like this really difficult to plan ahead as the GM because the player has so much like agency and effect on the world and the setting and because of the randomness of exploration. The Wild Sea is so vast and strange that it's not a world where everything is already discovered. The players have to go out and make those discoveries. One of the things about Wild Sea that I really like is that give and take between the GM and the players. Um, I know I've talked about this a lot, but I feel like for a long time, roleplay was sort of set up as, and this is, you know, uh, largely dependent on like the, the D&D um, ecosystem, but it's been largely set up as the GM's job is to like challenge and, and trick or, or challenge and defeat the players. Bully. Yeah. And I mean, it, it can definitely get like much more hostile than that. But like, I know like when I was learning to play, it was either sort of like you're guiding players through a story you've already written or um, you're trying to like trick your players. And this is like a really good example of that sort of give and take that really I think modern role playing is a lot better at and that I think really provides a lot of richness to your table. I also think that this reminds me a little bit of Heroic Chord, um, especially the magic system where you like propose a spell to the GM and then they say yes or no or, you know, ask you to tweak it. This is like that, but it's everything. Like everything you do is sort of a give and take, which I think is just very cool. It's a great way to build a tight knit and and trusting environment at the table. But it's also just a lot of fun. I know it's a lot harder to GM, but there's a lot of like good to come from that approach. And I think I'm really excited to see how that's going to actually like manifest as we start playing. Yeah. So I actually have a statement and then a question for Alex. I'm actually interested in this game because like for me, it's been difficult finding a game that kind of strikes the balance between role play and mechanics where it's like it kind of sucks. But like for me, I think D&D 5e has been that perfect balance and trying to find something to replace that has been difficult because like I love Monster of the Week. I love Powered by the Apocalypse, but it just doesn't feel like there's enough dice rolls sometimes. And of course, that is dependent on how you play, but I tend to be very rambly and narrative focused. So, you know, when I'm GMing, usually there's not that much rolling, which kind of sucks because I like rolling click clacks or other games are like very mechanically focused like Lancer. And it's just like, there's too many numbers. I just want to make stupid jokes and roll some click clacks. And so Wild Sea, I think, has the potential to strike this balance because I, you know, I really liked her accord. I think there was a perfect amount of click clack rolling and, and role play. So I'm kind of interested to see how Wild Sea will play out. And then my second question, or my first question second statement to Alex is how have you played a lot of TTRPGs? I don't remember if you said that in your intro and I apologize if I blanked that out, but I've 
played a little bit. I am okay. experienced in that I have GM'd a couple of games, but it was all a fairly long time ago. Back in college, mostly, was most of my TTRPG experience. I have a habit of like reading through a bunch of rule books and wishing I had time. Oh, we all have that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Mostly because I am one of those people that is like ridiculously hard to pin down. And every single time I get into a regular game without fail, I end up having to leave a couple of sessions in just because the way that my schedule is set up, I tend to be one of those people that has like a different schedule every single week. And it's really, really hard for me to slot out like the time. I tend to be a bit of a nomad. Like Isa. <laughs> yes, like Isa. Like Isa. <laughs> I mean, I think I've lived in like over 10 houses in the past 10 years. Oh my gosh. When I say nomad, I mean like genuinely, I just move all over the place. So I'm also physically a little bit harder to keep down, but I'm, I'm familiar, you know, I've, I've played before. I've played quite frequently before when I was in college. It's just been a little bit. Like we stated, Alex is much cooler than us. <laughs> um. I have a comment on that particular thing because I like my hobbies are Excel in constructing languages. Like, I don't know anyone else who would call me cool. <laughs> yeah, you're a fucking nerd, but you're like a cool nerd. Like, <laughs> those two things aren't like, it's not that they can't coexist. You can Alex be Alex is really going to bring that spirit of exploration to our game today. Yeah. Yes. I am very excited about that. <laughs> I also hate that you said like, oh, back in college. And I'm like, yeah, that was like a couple years ago, right? And it's like, no, we're old now. <laughs> You're old now. I mean, technically, technically, I am a college student. You are still in college. <laughs> Super college. Yeah, you're getting your third piece of paper instead of your first. <laughs> yes. So I'm going to get us back on track here by uh, talking about one of the main mechanics of Wild Sea, which is appropriately called tracks. So in Wild Sea, pretty much everything uses tracks to mark progress. It's basically a named set of boxes or circles that you write down on the page. Could be two circles, could be ten circles, depending on how long this particular track should take. If you're working on a project, like trying to research or build something, you have a track for that. If you're traveling on your ship, you have a track to indicate how far your journey still has to go. Even in combat, instead of like hit points or damage, you have tracks to fill to indicate wear and tear on your ship and your equipment. So for example, when a track is filled on a piece of gear, it has to be replaced or repaired before it can be used again. I think tracks is very cool because it's like, you know, in narrative, it's always like, oh, show, don't tell. But I feel like in, in games, especially in tabletop games, when you're doing a lot of improv, it can be okay to have a little bit of tell in just helping keeping you on on track. The word track is stuck in my brain. So that's what I use. <laughs> so so I don't know. I like that. I like mechanics that can help you focus. You're playing a little bit, especially if you're like new to a system and not entirely, uh, you're not super comfortable in it, right? It's not kind of in the back of your mind, you're doing it automatically. You know, it's nice to have guidelines like this. Yeah, I have mixed feelings about tracks as um, as HP, just because I, I have the suspicion that it's going to slow down the way that we resolve combat situations. As in, you're going to have to like think really hard about where you're taking damage as opposed to just like you take damage moving on. But there's definitely role play benefits. And I definitely agree that even though like I love the role playness of this game, I do think there's definitely some benefit in having physical boxes that you check. 
It also takes some of the sting out of it if you get in a combat situation and you have an item that's damaged. It feels a lot more fair and gradual to say like, uh-oh, your weapon is getting damaged because of these combat situations as opposed to like you're in a fight and your weapon is just damaged from that fight and that's it. It's out of the game. Which is hopefully something that wouldn't happen in roleplay, but I like the extra structure here so that like the player has some agency and has some awareness of how things are going for them in a way that's a little different than HP. So I'm really curious to see how this actually plays out, but I like it in theory. I do want to know, because you said, you know, Fallout is like your favorite post-apoc fiction. How do you feel this is kind of similar to Fallout, like, you know, the combat and that how there's different tracks, which we haven't gotten into, but we'll get into that, is like the different tracks are different HP bars, essentially, for stuff. How do you feel when it's like, it's kind of like VATS, right? Like you can target specific, yeah, you know, body parts or pieces of armor, I guess. And then also there is, I don't know if you can repair items in this game, but you can. Isa has skills in repair, so... I hope okay, so. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, nope, you're you're useless. Um, no, but yeah, like, you know, your items in Fallout, if you use them, they... They degrade, yeah. Yeah. So it kind of reminds me of Fallout it in does. that aspect. Um, if you wanted to, like, strip all of the flavor and coolness out of Wild Sea, this would probably be a pretty great Fallout game. But don't, please don't do that. Please don't do that. <laughs> Yeah, and I think there are just, like, a lot of really creative ways that you can choose to use these tracks. Like, let's say in Dungeons & Dragons, you're trying to convince someone to trust you. Like, you just roll a persuasion check and see what happens go from there. Whereas, like, in Wild Sea, your GM might decide to make a track for that, and you have to gradually gain this person's trust over time by, like, performing actions that fill that track. It's this concrete mechanic that can be used in almost unlimited ways. And I think that's pretty cool. I think it might be difficult to sort of get a feel for going in, but it feels like one of those mechanics that once you're more experienced with it, it could just be like second nature. Yeah, I think I think the flexibility of tracks is one of the things that Wild Sea has that I feel like is really unique and cool, which is that if you want a mechanic, you just add it. <laughs> like, like, how long is your journey? I don't know, add a track for that. I think just think that that's really great. It adds a lot of stuff to the GM's toolkit that doesn't actually involve complicated pre-planning, which I think is really great. Just on the fly, you can be like, I'm going to put a track on that and we'll go over time and see how it feels. I also really like that it has like sort of a narrative element to it too. When I when I first read um, was reading through the rule book, when I saw the tracks, my first thought is, oh, that's story beats. Like that's just, you know, okay, we have this many beats to get through to something. Like when I'm planning out a novel, I'm planning out a story – that's like the same way that I plan it out is the same way that you would plan it, that you would have it on here. And I just think that's um, narratively, that's so much more flexible than doing like HP or doing like, you know, rolling for persuasion or something. And then also I've always sort of hated when you have, you know, you have to roll for persuasion or roll for something in D and D and then the dice sort of determine something that isn't, you know, you roll on at one or you just roll a little bit too low and it feels like it sort of cuts the story off. And with the tracks, you have more room to be able to maneuver around that. It's not just up to a roll of the dice. Yeah, it's like even if you fail, that's not cut off to you. You can continue to try other things to advance that track. And like some tracks will be filled actively by actions that you perform. And some tracks might be filled passively just as time passes or a combination of both. I think it could be fun. I'm I'm curious to see what sort of tracks we build during this game. Yeah, me too. 
So I've mentioned actions a few times now. So I think it's time we talk about the click clacks that Vappy is so enamored with. How and when we roll the dice. So Wild Seed does have a robust like skills and attributes system. The attributes are called edges. Edges represent the way your character approaches problems, the like methods they're most effective with. So the edges in Wild Sea are Grace, Iron, Instinct, Sharps, Teeth, Tides, and Veils, which uh, I will comment are not the most intuitive names for things. It's like Grace makes sense, that's elegance, agility, precision. Iron is force, determination, willpower. Instinct is like sense, intuition, and reaction. And then there are things like sharps, which are logic, wit, planning. Teeth is savagery, passion, and destruction. Tides is exploration, learning, and lore. And veils is shadows, ciphers, and secrecy. So these represent like how you might approach problems. Every character has three edges, which represent their most common approaches. And they also have skills, and there's a long list of skills, so I'm not going to go through all of them. When you are doing something that has a chance of failure, when you're making a roll, first you say like what your actual desired outcome is, you state your intent, and then you build a dice pool. Wild Sea only uses D6s, so you're building a dice pool of D6s. You add one die if you have a relevant edge, one of those attributes that you're using to solve this problem. And then you add a number of dice equal to the ranks in a relevant skill. And then you add dice for any relevant advantages. And an advantage can be like if the situation is particularly conducive to what you're trying to do. Like if you're high up and you're trying to see somewhere far away, that could be an advantage. Or if you have a character specific ability or piece of gear that would help you with that, you can add a d6 to your dice pool for that. And so once you have your dice pool all set, you roll all of them and you use your highest die as the result. A six is a total success, a four or five is a partial success with a drawback, and a one to three is a failure. So this is familiar. We've seen this in a couple of other systems by now, particularly Monster of the Week, with that partial success system. But one cool thing about Wild Sea that I haven't seen anywhere else is if you roll doubles of any number, you introduce a twist. Something unexpected and out there that could completely change what you're trying to do. And the cool thing about twists is that they are player suggested. Like the GM can just say to the other players at the table, oh, Bappy rolled doubles when they were trying to climb up the side of this ship what sort of twist is going to happen here? And someone could suggest like, oh, maybe a creature like bursts out of the treetops and is now chasing after them. It could be anything. And again, that's another reason why this game is so hard to plan in advance is because you're actively asking the players to introduce wrenches into your narrative. It actually kind of reminds me of Heroic Court a little bit because Heroic Court also had you roll a handful of dice and in that one, you were counting up your successes, not just taking the highest necessarily. Like I said, I like rolling clickety clacks. So I am a fan of this. Let me roll all clickety clacks. Thank you. Pappy likes dice and endorses this message. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm also of the dice goblin variety. I like to roll my dice. I always get a little bit sad when a game doesn't have D20s in it, but I will I will settle for rolling a shit ton of D6, uh, if nothing else. That's why we need to make our own game where we can roll all the dice. 
you just like upend your dice bag on the floor and it just goes everywhere and you have to count the rest of the game. Isn't that just Shadowrun? <laughs> <laughs> I want to play a game that makes me buy a dice tower and I can kind of be like, this is necessary. Okay. I'm getting one of the sick dice towers that has a little, it looks like a castle and there's a little mossy pool at the bottom and there's a dragon on the top and I need it. One of these days, one of these days we'll play a game where I I really need to buy a dice tower. Hey, listeners, you should uh, donate to (laughs) our dice tower fund. Please donate to our Ko-Fi so we can buy some dice towers. I'm just kidding. It's for website hosting. But, you know, maybe maybe after website hosting, we can buy some dice towers. So I I think that this is an interesting way to, to do rolling. I also kind of like that your highest one is your result because I feel like that combined with the if you roll doubles, there's automatically a twist lets you do more dynamic stuff as opposed to sitting there and like adding up all your dice and then like announcing to the group like I rolled six D6 and I got I got a 20. Just I, I feel like um that's one of those things that is not a huge deal. Like almost everyone can count the numbers that show up on their 66 or whatever. But I think that this will let a lot of snappy decisions and snappy role play happen. And I just think that that is almost always a good choice. Keep your roles relatively simple, let people be as much as a, of a dice goblin as they can inside that framework and introduce mechanics that let people respond to dynamic situations quickly. It's much more interesting to be like, I got a five than it is like Pathfinder style where you're like, I got a 72. <laughs> so I think I think this is going to lead to some really like dynamic combat and other actions. And I'm excited about that. I do just want to note real quick that like the doubles, it doesn't matter what doubles you roll. Like if you roll two sixes, like yes, one of those counts as your success, but you still get a twist. And that's not necessarily like a better or worse twist than if you roll two ones. A twist is a twist. It's not inherently good or bad. It's just changing the situation in often an unpredictable way. Yeah, it doesn't matter if it's a donut twist or a Twizzler twist. Yeah. Or I guess I should probably mention that I have played this game a few times already. Uh, not with this group, with another group. So I do have some experience like running this game. And the twists have always just been like really cool. Definitely a highlight. So there are a couple other modifiers to the dice rolls. Like if you're in a particularly difficult situation, for example, you might have to cut some of your dice. And that means that after you roll your dice pool, you remove the highest, just the single highest die. So you roll four d6s, your highest is a six, you remove that one, and now your highest is a five, and you take that as your result. You can also choose to cut your own dice pool. There's another mechanic in this game called impact, which is how much of an effect your action will have. And so you can say like, I'm going to roll my 66s, but I'm going to cut one and that is a cut for impact. And if I still roll a success, it's going to be a success, but with a greater effect like on the surrounding world than it might have otherwise. And I just think that's cool because it lets you decide to take those risks. One of the criticisms we have of Dungeons and Dragons sometimes is if you roll a d20 and get like a super high roll, it might just be like an unrealistic result. Like you can't say I'm going to pick up this boulder and throw it up the mountain let me roll athletics and get a natural 20 and do that. 
in Wild Sea, your impact is determined like going in. Like if you say, I want to do something kind of unrealistic, your GM can tell you your action's going to have a low impact and you might not get the result you want, but rather a downgrade of whatever you're attempting to do. So you can pick up this rock, but you can't really throw it anywhere. Most actions are just normal impact, which is, you know, you're trying to do something reasonable and you're able to do something reasonable. But if your GM tells you that this action will have high impact, or if you, like I said before, cut a die to make your action more high impact, then your action is stronger, which normally lets you, if you're trying to affect a track, mark off an additional box, advance the track further, or it might just upgrade the raw power of whatever you're attempting, such as letting you kick a door off its hinges rather than just kick it open. So I like that you're able to make decisions regarding not just how you're affecting the world, but how much those things are affecting the narrative. Yeah, I really like that you can cut a die to increase your impact. Because like you said, in D&D, like your DM should be straight up telling you like, okay, you can try this, but you're not gonna do it (laughs) necessary, even if you roll really high. But kind of circling back to what we mentioned earlier with the tracks, like it's kind of nice to have the mechanics a little bit give you a guideline to the narrative. Yeah, I don't know. I just I think that's like a really I don't know how to play out, but I feel like it's really balanced to be like, okay, so your action's gonna have low impact. You can cut a bunch of dice to try to make it high impact, but you know, the chances of you succeeding are gonna be much lower. And so that's an interesting way to leverage those numbers. It also makes me think a little bit of our famous D D problem of um no non-lethal range damage. <laughs> <laughs> I just like that you have control over your actions. I think that that's a really interesting mechanic on both sides of the table, both for the GM and for the players, because it just allows a lot more variety in what you're doing. And one of my absolute favorite things is variety in the way that you execute things and variety in your actions. We did some some really cool stuff, for example, during our heroic chord, where I was like, oh, you can do that. And that's like my absolute favorite tabletop type of moments is is where you just do wild stuff and see kind of how it how it turns out. And so I'm glad that you have more choices, you have more variety and you have more you have more toys to play with basically. We should have a segment where it's like in this game, can you do non-lethal range damage <laughs> and that determines whether it's worth playing or not. This game does have like most other games, combat, and I'm going to go through that really quick. The combat in Wild Sea isn't as complex as say, Lancer or maybe even Dungeons and Dragons, but there is a lot going on there. But there are also some unique mechanics in here that I haven't seen in a lot of other games. So Wild Sea has a completely freeform turn order. Who is acting and when they're acting is dictated by the narrative and what makes sense. As players take turns, the GM should be tracking focus, which is who's basically acting and in the spotlight. And if one player has been perhaps in the background or not spending as much time in the spotlight, it's the GM's job to shift focus to them, either by, you know, asking them how they're reacting, what they're doing, or by introducing a threat to them. So really, players can go in any order, can take multiple turns, but this is very focused on collaboration. And the idea is to make sure everyone sort of gets that time in the spotlight. Attacking and defending, the two main parts of combat, are mechanically the same as any other action. 
you build your dice pool with your edge, your skill, and any relevant advantages. The GM does not roll for any attacks. Instead, the player rolls for defense. And the player gets to choose how they're attacking or defending, which allows them flexibility to build that dice pool. Like, if you're defending, you could use the brace skill to brace yourself and shake off the damage, or the dodge skill to just try and avoid it. When you're attacking, a successful attack allows you to either deal damage or inflict an effect on an enemy. And effects are things like slowing, knocking down, lighting them on fire. And a successful defense allows you to avoid all incoming damage or effects. If you roll four or five when you're attacking, you can deal either a damage or an effect, like with a success, but you also take damage or an effect in return. If you roll doubles when you're attacking, that's a critical hit that lets you hit twice, deal two effects, or choose one of each. And if you roll doubles while defending, you basically get to do a counter attack and inflict damage or an effect on an enemy in return. As mentioned before, you have no hit points in Wild Sea. When you're taking damage, that's typically marked as damage to your aspects, which encompass your equipment and your special abilities. You take that damage by marking a spot on the relevant track, and when that track is full, you can no longer use that aspect. So this means that like even in combat, there's a huge focus on roleplay, on what makes sense. Like, are you blocking this attack by taking some durability damage to your weapon? Or does this attack like shake your composure, perhaps impacting your ability to use one of your specific character abilities? It makes you really think during combat about what is happening to you. It's not just a back and forth fight. Your character is being affected on a deeper way than just, like, how hurt they are. So you can repair items, but can you repair aspects? Yeah, so we mentioned resources earlier, how it's important to, like, collect these resources. And this is why. Like, if you collect scrap resources, parts, pieces of the environment, like, you can use those, consume those scraps to repair equipment. And with personal abilities, um, attributes that are more physical, you can reduce the damage on those with eating good food or mixing like berries you found into a potion. That also is very roleplay dependent. Like you get to decide how you're using this item to repair your equipment or your ability. There's nothing that says that you can't use a particular item to repair one of these tracks. There's nothing that says a dog can't play basketball. (laughs) Of course, there are also injuries. Sometimes you do just take damage. You break a leg or sprain an ankle, pull your back, whatever. This usually happens if you don't have something relevant, some relevant uh, aspect that will take that damage for you. And when you take an injury, you write a track for it. An injury might make it so that, for example, you have to cut your dice pool when you're doing certain abilities, or it might make certain skills unavailable to you for a time, but that track will refill over time as you heal, and you can perhaps find ways to speed along that process and fill those tracks. Notably, there is nothing in this manual about death. I don't think I don't think you can die in this game unless you choose to, and I think I'm I'm a fan of that personally. Yes, I I definitely agree. Losing a character you've worked really hard on is a bummer. <laughs> like 
pretty much regardless of the system. And there are games where having death can be meaningful. Like I feel like in maybe like 13th age, considering like the, the impact you have on the world, um, that it might be really meaningful if you had a character death. But in a game like this, it's like, ugh, what a bummer. Like I created this really cool character and then they get eaten by um, any of the various things in this game that want to eat you. And that'd be just such a bum. I don't know. Like it, like it would make more sense that they like needed to retire for a while and recover than they would just die. I feel like it's not very in the spirit of this game. I do have mixed feelings about the combat system, though. I feel like out of everything in this book, this is the bit that I'm the least certain about. I just don't know what this is going to look like to play, even though I love the way that tracks play into it. I'm just not sure what this is going to be like to play. And I also, this is just my like goofy pet peeve. Um, in addition to grid role play, the other thing I'm not a huge fan of is free initiative order. This is just a me thing. I actually think there's a lot of like role play benefits in free initiative order, but dang it, I like to know what order I'm going in. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the mechanic in here where you can pass your turn to someone else. That I do think is really is really great, especially for problem solving where, you know, if you're playing something like D&D or Pathfinder or 13th Age, something that has initiative, sometimes you get stuck in a situation where you're like, shoot, I really want to use my ability before you go, but I can't do that. I need to wait till after your turn. And I feel like being able to pass your turn to someone else and then get it back afterwards is a really, really great mechanic. But yeah, I just like to know what order everyone's going in personally. Um, so I'm not a huge fan of freeform initiative um, or freeform turn order. That's just me. I think, like I said, I do think there's benefits to it. I just get a little cranky when I see that that's the case. I'm like, ugh. I don't mind freeform because, you know, like I said, I, I do a lot of Monster of the Week. It's the one I've played the most. So I'm used to used to that. I don't know how I feel about aspects kind of being your quote unquote hit points. I'm just not sure how I feel about it. I don't necessarily feel badly about it. It's just something new and I can't quite I can't quite manifest it in my mind's eye. And so I'm just kind of like question mark and a little I'm approaching it with some trepidation. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. And I, I'll admit that when I've played this game before, like, that's probably the part of the rule set that is the least intuitive. In the playtest document, it was really hard for me to figure out what happens when you're attacked. Maybe when this game is out of playtest, the book will be more clear on that. But that's definitely a note I would have is that it's it's not intuitive, and I don't think it is spelled out very well in the book as it is now. Yeah, I've never played anything that hasn't had like a turn order, so this is going to be my first time. <laughs> so we're going to see how this goes. I'm like a little bit apprehensive just because I tend to be, I don't know, maybe I'm just like a little bit quieter, but I'm, I'm sort of a diva on this one. I'm like, I've never done it before, so I'm interested to see how it goes, but I'm a little apprehensive about that particular part. Yeah, I'm really interested to check in with you after we play about how you felt about the flexible turn order. Um, because yeah, I'm I'm the same where I like I really like to know when my turn is and I like the benefit of um, every player at the table having a set time to go. I think at our metaphorical table on the podcast we do a really good job switching and of course it helps that like we've all been friends for a while and we tend to have people on the podcast who we're friends with so we don't have a table where there's like one player who's like no it's my turn to go damn it which makes flexible turn order a lot easier but like i said i personally am on team fixed turn order even though i think there's a lot of benefits to flexible turn order too yeah the way to resolve your trepidation with flexible turn order is just to have friends who don't suck <laughs> You know, that's it. That's all. Problem solved. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I've definitely played with like a couple people who would 100% take advantage of flexible turn order. And that's like, there's still going to be a problem at the table, even if you have fixed turn order, because those types of players are just sort of generally a little bit harder to wrangle into being able to do something collaborative. And I feel like with a game that is as collaborative as Wild Sea, like that sort of problem would show itself real, real quick, like before you would get into combat. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I'm interested to see how it goes. I've never done this before. A lot of these rules have a lot of nuance and a lot more detail to them, but we just don't have time to get into all of that. I absolutely recommend, if any of this sounds interesting to you, get the book. So now we're going to go ahead into character creation. So character creation also has the opportunity to be pretty freeform. So your character has the edges, as I mentioned, the ways you're used to solving problems and tackling challenges. They have their skills, which are specific areas in which you have training or ability. Wild Sea also uses languages. Every character has a free fluency in low sour, which is just like the common language. Different groups of people, different races, and different cultures also have their own languages. And you can choose to use some of your skill points to have fluency in them. Then there are aspects, which we mentioned a little bit in combat. Aspects are things that make your character unique and distinct. And there are three types of aspects. There are traits, which are innate functions of your biology, like the moth people have wings and can use those wings in certain ways. There's also gear, which is a catch-all term for weapons, armor, and tools. Things that aren't a part of your body necessarily, but they're still unique to you. And then there are companions, which can be trained animals, spirits that hang out with you. There are lots of ghosts in this game. And that is what we mentioned in combat, what takes damage for you, what is affected when you are attacked. When you build a character, you choose three main things. You can There is your bloodline, which is equivalent to your race. And I mentioned a couple of those in the lore section earlier. Each race sort of has a different culture, different aspects available to them. And then you have your origin, which is how you were raised. Like Ridgebacks were raised on mountaintop islands. Submerged lived in colonies underneath the canopy. Or Windward people are travelers, nomads. It's sort of just your upbringing, sort of like equivalent to your background in Dungeons and Dragons. And then there is the post, which is what is your job on the ship? This is what's most equivalent to your class. Again, there's a lot of nuance to these rules. There are options for you to either choose a quick start character, which is you just choose one bloodline, one origin, and one post and follow instructions for each one. But there's also the option for you to cobble together what you want from all of the options available, where you might take one trait from the Ectus, the Cactus race, and you might take another trait from the Celecry, the spider colonies, and kind of decide how that shapes your character. But it is definitely easiest just to go with the quick start, and there are plenty of options available to you if you're just doing that. Hey everybody, thanks so much for listening. I wanted to jump in with a quick reminder that you can support us by leaving a review on Podchaser or iTunes. 
Since we're an independent show, this helps us a ton. You can also support us by buying stickers, making a one-time donation, or joining as a monthly supporter on our Ko-fi page at ko-fi.com slash the eternity archives. Our monthly supporters get exclusive behind the scenes content like character sheets, GM notes, and access to our fan discord. Before we get back to it, here's a message from another great show on the Be Gay Roll Dice Network. Check them out and give them a listen. Thanks so much and enjoy the rest of the episode. Hi, I'm Kendrick. I'm Gus. I'm Hilda. And I'm Marcy. And we're the cast of Tales Yet Told. An actual play podcast dedicated to telling weird and fun stories full of imagination, thoughtful characterization, and inclusivity. You should go listen to our first season, Strangers in the Wood. Where we play Babes in the Wood, an over-the-garden-wall-inspired tabletop RPG by Adam Voss. It's fun. Spooky. And full of weird characters, like Dex the diner owner and Miss Jackson the parrot desk attendant. And with lovable player characters, like Dakota, Dorothy, and Walter the Weasel. Follow us on Twitter at Tales Yet Told for more details and look out for new episodes every Wednesday. So go out, eat well, sleep enough, <laughs> and love yourself like we love you. <laughs> So let's talk about the characters that you have built for this game today. You don't have to go super into detail about, you know, all of your skills, all of your aspects, but definitely just give us an idea of your bloodline origin and post. If you have an aspect or two that is really cool, go ahead and tell us about that as well. So Linda today is a Gao rootless char which means that she is a like fungus or mushroom person. So in Linda's case, she's like a, a little chubby, sweet mushroom, sort of like a um, like an Amanita. So she's got like instead of hair, she has a, a cute little red and white spotted mushroom cap. I'm very excited about that. One of the aspects that she gets as part of being a Gao is a um, fungal tendril. So Linda's got an extra arm, which works very well with her post which is Char, which is basically a magic chef. So she's like very good at scavenging and pulling together um, food to help heal people and give them other important advantages they need, which I just think is a lot of fun. And also um, she's rootless, which basically means that her origin is that she's always been a, a sailor in this universe. She's always been part of the wild sea like exploration. So she gets some things that just make her particularly robust and know a lot about the universe. So this particular form of Linda is going to be scavenging and cooking and telling stories and making friends and food all the time as a cute little chubby mushroom lady. So I'm really excited about about this. This is like a very unique and interesting way to build a character Um, and even like like Linda's going to look different than every gal and even every gal rootless char just because of the way character creation works. So, so I just think it's it's very fun to build a character in this game. Does she look like Toad from Mario? Now that you say that, <laughs> yeah, a little bit, but but um <laughs> less the way Toad is that kind of creeps me out. Um okay, so uh for Rail, I am a Mothrin. Mothrin is the moth people. They just look like kind of like a poodle moth, I guess, but bipedal. <laughs> I was actually looking at pictures of poodle moths and, and I found a, a 
picture of a Mothman plush, so I guess it's up to you if they are a Poodle Moth or Mothman. I think both fit pretty well. They are a Spitborn, which is like in like cities, like kind of a slummy type city, crowded city. A spit is like a specific setting. Um, I don't know if Dorco, you would be able to give more insight on specifically what a spit is. A spit is sort of like a piece of land or a large enough chunk of debris that's been pushed to the top of the canopy, large enough for people to live there. They're not typically very long lasting. Some might last for years and some might only be around for a couple of days or weeks. So colonies sort of form up around them and dissolve constantly. Yes, very transient life. Not that Rill would know that because they're not from here, but that's the part of the character that they they are embodying today. Um, And then their post is Surgeon. I I actually picked Char at first, but then um, I saw that Linda was our Char. I'm like, ah, it'd be funny to have two cooks, but no, I'll do Surgeon. Um, Kind of lean more into that uh, sort of medical background that Rill has. So there you go. I'm a I'm a little uh, a little slummy kid poodle moth surgeon. I was actually really surprised how well Issa's background sort of fit into like the background that we could make in Wild Sea. She is a Ketra, which is sort of these gelatinous people that came from the people who were remained under the canopy when the Verdancy happened. Basically, they look like Davy Jones from, with like, you know, the tentacles and sort of the weird, almost octopodal aesthetic going on. And then to sort of like mimic her original background, um, she's an anchor, which means at some point in the past she died. There is some sort of death here. And she's anchored, her spirit is anchored to, which in this case is like a broken locket that her ghost is attached to. And then for her post, um, she's a navigator because she's searching her, her in-world, in-wild sea goal is also the same as sort of like searching for her father. And it just lined up really nicely. So she's like herself, but she's a ghost and she has tentacles. <laughs> we love and support our tentacle friends. <laughs> so I, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about wild sea rules, but I feel like there is one more thing that I do want to bring up real quick, which is mire and drive. These are sort of roleplay hooks, I guess, that your character has. Meyer is how your character reacts or experiences the sort of weird and horrible stuff in the wild sea. Sort of neuroses or tics that manifest like when you are more uncomfortable. And then there are drives, which is what dreams you want to achieve, what goals you have. And they're mostly roleplay, but there are also mechanical benefits to them. So like when you have marked Mire, which has a track, not only are you supposed to like play your character using that sort of insecurity or phobia or tendency that you've chosen, but when you try to act in a way that contradicts a mire, you cut a number of dice equal to the amounts of marks on that mire track. So it kind of makes it more difficult for you to act your best and think clearly. And when you're achieving something that advances or satisfies one of your drives, you can clear some of your mire or you gain a whisper, which is sort of a living rumor. We'll get into that more during actual play. So does everyone want to, I want everyone to tell me either one drive or one mire you have. So I already mentioned one of Issa's drives, which was find her father. But then another one that I really liked that was suggested was discover a great secret of the waves. 
which is sort of like a personal narrative. And then did you want us to tell a Meyer as well or just to drive? Uh, yeah, give us a Meyer too. One of the cool Meyers that I had was visions of your past death are difficult to banish, which just struck me as basically PTSD, but like with a game mechanic for it. That's cool. So one of Linda's drives for this game is help other Gao explore the wider waves. Uh, the Gao are apparently like a very like tight knit people, which I thought was um, was just kind of like a nice drive and very Linda. And one of her Myers is uh, fruits you collect rot and sour in their jars, which I both thought made sense for a fungus person, but also is obviously like a really bad time if you are playing as a char. Um, yeah, so one of my drives is throw yourself into dire situations with vigor. And then one of my Myers is, I'd say your elegance evaporates, leaving you clumsy. That's that's one of the Mothrin Myers, um, because they're supposed to be like the super elegant, dainty little race of people. And Rill isn't so much, so. <laughs> yeah, and I think like hearing those drives and Myers gives a better picture of like what it might look like to play into those than my explanation might have. Like, I think there's so much in this book and in this game that you kind of have to read through the options to kind of get a sense for how that will affect your play, which is both good and bad, I think. Yeah, I think this is a game that's hard to understand on its on its surface, but the good news is that the book is both easy to read and well-organized and beautiful. So if this is like something you're interested in, get the book. Like, definitely. This is, it's a really, really good example of a tabletop book. It's also just like fun to read. Yeah. So does anyone have any more um, comments or impressions before we get back into the library? I think I'm good. I think I'm ready. All right. Yeah, I'm eager to uh, to move ahead with actual play. All right. So we just spent a lot of time talking about the rules, talking about the characters, but now let's get back to the library. I think we're going to pick up directly after our Dungeon Bitches arc, our last chapter where Zen had finally offered to show Rill and Linda what exactly she's been doing all this time in secret. Oh yeah, I forgot yes, about that. please. <laughs> Linda has been driven slightly insane by this, and she's happy to leave their, their game of dream boys alone if she can finally find out what Zen has been doing. Yeah, and after the uh, the rough experience they just got out of, Zen is feeling a little more trusting, or at least she feels like this is something she probably needs to share. So she leads the two of you through the halls of the library to the room she's claimed as her own. And I don't know what you expected her room to look like, but it probably wasn't this. There are books and scrolls just all over the place. Some are history books, books on politics, others are science books, physics, chemistry, tech manuals. The room is a mess. It looks like a college dorm. And she's been tinkering with shit, trying to put stuff together. In one corner, it looks like there's some sort of rudimentary flamethrower like a pale imitation of the one she briefly had in Sweetgrass. Not all of the pieces seem to fit together correctly. It seems held together with duct tape and maybe even a bit of magic. Either way, Zen has been, like, really fucking busy. Where where did you get the parts for all this shit? 
you know, you just find stuff around in the library. Uh, you found parts for a flamethrower? I mean, to be fair, you found a dumpling. Uh, yeah, I guess. I imagine it comes from the same place we get all the food. That is a good point. Mm. It would have been more helpful to find one whole, but you make do with what you've got, right? Why do you have a flamethrower? Why is that your go-to? I mean, it's cool, but why is that your go-to? I, I was going to ask that question next. Yes. I mean, you two, you're both from, let's face it, places a little more advanced than where I'm from. This this is probably as, as, as good as I can do on my own. I mean, it's pretty fucking good. Like, you d- normal people can't just do this. I, I can't make a flamethrower. I've had help. Oh? I don't think this is uh, doable without, like, magical assistance, so I called in some help. Oh, is that what the two of you have been doing? Yeah, Zen has had uh, Joseph in and out of her room occasionally. I guess he's been practicing his magic, and she's been helping him practice by having him, like, help her put shit together. Oh, I'm so glad Joseph is making friends. But why would you hide this from us? All right, so, you know, back home, my people, my family, we're not really, like, the good guys. I think that was made pretty clear wherever we just were. So, you know, I left. I thought I could outrun it. Absolved myself of responsibility, you know? Sure. Yeah, I've had a lot of time to think here in the library, and I left a lot of people behind, and they weren't all bad. So I'm working out a plan. Or, you know, half a plan, at least some percentage of a plan. I figure I was probably brought here for a reason, right? So I'm going to learn what I can here, and then I'm going to figure out how to go home. And I wasn't sure how to tell you that until now. Oh. Well, Zen, I think that's that's so noble and brave of you, and I hope if we all learned anything back there that we learned that we've all done things we're not proud of, and that we always have each other. Thank you for finally telling us. You you don't have to hide. We want to be there for you. I don't know. I thought if uh, I thought if you found out I wasn't planning on staying forever or however this works, I thought you'd be mad at me. Oh, Zen. And and Linda gives you a big hug. Oh. Real nods at all of this. Um they're not mad, but they definitely look like conflicted. <laughs> yeah, they just kind of stand to the side awkwardly watching you two embrace. <laughs> Are we going to pull Rill into this group hug? Yes. Sorry, Rill. Uh, oh, no. I, okay, okay, yeah. Dumpling's here, too. Dumpling has many limbs for hugging. Dumpling yes. probably gives really great hugs. Dumpling gives great hugs. Dumpling is a good hat. <laughs> a good backpack. Dumpling is a creature of many talents. So, um, so Linda's going to do the little um, hug ending pat and lean back and say, Look, things here are strange. And I don't think they're going to stay the same forever. And uh, I guess if there's another thing we learned back there, it's that things change. But as long as you're here, Zen, I want to be your friend and I want to help you. And I think if that's what you want to do, let's figure out a way to make it happen. I appreciate that. I guess if we start heading off, Ryo would kind of hang back by Zen and just kind of be like, "Um, you'll let us know when you're kind of getting ready to leave, right? I don't even know how I would leave yet, to be honest. Okay. Yeah, I just, you know, um... No, I'm not gonna- I'm not just gonna disappear one day. I hope. 
Okay. I mean, yeah, that'd be ideal. I think what you're doing is cool, even if it kind of makes me sad. But, um, you know, uh, I guess what we're supposed to face are demons and stuff. And it's it's good that you're doing that. So, you know, as friends, I need to... I I support you. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Give Zen a pat on the back (laughs) and then walk off. (laughs) So you all go your separate ways. Time passes. As always, it's difficult to say how much, but the library is much more tense than it's been before. Apparently, your group isn't the only one having problems. Other groups of archivists have lost anomalies, had them stolen... In one case, an entire group just vanished. The anchor included. Oh my god. Oh no. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Still, there's no sign or word from whoever must be in charge of the library. Just rumors whispered from one group of archivists to another. Some groups have taken to using code words like yours has. Some people are distrustful of other groups, and some are reaching out and making more connections just to have you know, more support, other other teams to rely on. So, Isa, you're not a part of our- you're not a usual part of our standard archivist group. Are you usually with another group, or do you bounce from one group to the next? I guess you said you've only probably been on a couple of missions so far, but tell us how you're spending your time in the library. So, Isa has only just gotten here, and she may have gone with one other group, um, maybe two, but they probably, there either there wasn't a good fit, or something went, like, a little bit wrong, nothing, like, particularly major, but she just hasn't really, like, settled into something, into a group that she's going to be going out and doing these expeditions with yet. Mostly, she's just reading. She hasn't really found a solid group of friends. She's friendly with a number of people you might have seen her face around, but mostly she's trying to read up and learn as much about the library, or not so much about the library, but she's learning as much about like all the worlds around them as she can, based on like what information is available. Uh, because she's a little bit isolated, she may not have really understood the magnitude of those rumors, and she may not have a full grasp of everything that's going on or the tensions because she's just a little bit removed. Does she attend Linda's book club? She may have heard about it, and she may be planning on attending, or she may have shown up like just to the last meeting and was kind of quiet. Right, so you're still relatively unknown to us. Yes. Okay. So after that whole thing with the dungeon, the mysterious Nega library, y'all, like, don't hear from Rail for, like, what maybe what feels to be, like, a week. Like, they're just gone. Like, it's not like they're avoiding you. It's just, like, even if you asked other people, they'd just be like, yeah, I, I have no idea. I haven't seen them around. And they're just, yeah, they just for a certain amount of time, they were just gone, just like no one. And then, you know, one day they just were there again and... It was just totally normal. Like, they didn't act like it was, like, weird or shady or anything like that. It was just, they were gone, and then they were back. (laughs) Linda, how are you doing with this? Linda is still having kind of a hard time with the fact that she left her, her family behind. And so I think Linda probably has been taking some time to both kind of ask around casually and also do some research to figure out if there's any way to communicate between where they are now and just normal, non-archivist people on Earth. 
Uh, she has a vague intuition that that should be possible because obviously they, they reach out to their contacts, but she's not sure. So Linda has been um, doing some research and she's probably been a little more withdrawn than normal. Not on purpose, um, but if like, you know, she hasn't necessarily been like going out and meeting people. Um, she's been continuing to hold book club, but otherwise I think she's just kind of, she's kind of focused on trying to figure out if there's a way to communicate. Sorry, Alex, you're, you're coming in on the uh, tail end of a very heavy arc. I, I also <laughs> want to add in real quick that Issa has probably been observing all this. So she may be unknown to you guys, but you guys are not unknown to her. Ooh. Um, so, Ooh. well, not, not just you guys, but sort of in general, she has a very, just due to her upbringing and then due to some of her trauma with her dad, she has a very heightened awareness of the people around her. So she probably really likes Linda and thinks she's like, never really knew her mom. So she probably has like a little bit of like a mom crush. <laughs> but other than that, <laughs> um, she's sort of like, she's probably not noticing that something is necessarily wrong, but she sort of, she, she does have an awareness of who you are and has probably had a little bit of an awareness for a couple of weeks. Issa just has like like one of those like connections boards of like everyone in the library and how they know each other. Oh, Pepe Sylvia board. <laughs> like I can see her with like flashcards of like, okay, this is the person's name. This is what they like. This is what they don't like. This is like you know where you can find them if you need to get a hold of them. And doesn't think there's anything abnormal about this at all. Issa and Desi would probably get along really well. <laughs> probably. <laughs> I feel like Linda's, uh, you flip it over and it just has a big heart on the back. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Inevitably, as you always do, you find yourself called back to the book drop. The pages of your journals flip open, and your own handwriting scrawls across the page. It says, Return the Leviathan. When you find your way to the book drop itself, this cryptic message becomes slightly more clear. In the center of the room, there is an egg. Three of you recognize it. Issa does not. It's inky black, a void almost matching the space between the bookshelves here. This is the egg that was retrieved from Faerun, from Skullcrag. It had not belonged there, but apparently the senior archivists have figured out where it does belong. So, how are you reacting when you arrive? Linda is a little bit lost in thought on her way over. Um, she has figured more or less at this point that the library sort of decides where the book drop is. So she doesn't feel the need to figure out where she's going. She has one of these books she's been reading about multidimensional communication. And she's kind of flipping through it as she walks along. And um, sure enough, she looks up and she's in the book drop. And uh, she sees this egg and uh, tucks the book she's been reading into her backpack and just sort of stands there for a minute like, that looks awfully familiar. I just imagine it's like a book on how to use like Zoom video calls or FaceTime <laughs> or something. Skype for dummies. <laughs> yeah, Rill would kind of follow, uh, follow in with, with Dumpling on their shoulder. And, you know, they stand beside you. If you take a look at them, they have a black eye. But they're not making like a big deal out of it or anything. And they're just like... Uh, do they know that this egg is is here? I feel like it it shouldn't be here. Hi, by the way. <laughs> so Linda uh, opens her mouth to say something about the egg, and when she turns and looks at you, she goes, "Rill, what happened? What? What? You're what odd. happened? Rill, what happened to you? Did you get in a fight? Uh, no, I I tripped. 
did you trip or 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 do you just not want to tell me what happened? It was a real trip, right? Yeah. I, what? Why would I lie? Yeah, it was a real trip. Linda reaches into her bag and for some reason she has a bag of ice in there. <laughs> and she holds what? it out. It's perfectly unmelted. Yeah. How is this not melt? I mean, thank you. And she makes a big deal over putting it on your eye. She's kind of fussing over you because she feels a little bad that she has been a little withdrawn and she missed you. So she's going to make a big deal about it. Uh, thank you. It's it's fine, really. I Seriously, I, I just tripped. But thank you for this eldritch ice. <laughs> I, I'm sure it will help. They take it from you and put it on their eye. Zen arrives now and she is flipping through her own journal as she walks. And when she gets there, notices the rest of you. She grins her big toothy grin and says, Looks like I'm the anchor this time. Then she kind of does a, a double take when she sees Isa, who she does not recognize. And then another double take when she notices Vril's black eye. And Zen just says, You know, if you came to practice more, you wouldn't get hit like that. <laughs> I got hit by the floor. Does the floor have a fist? I tripped, yes. I don't know, sometimes. <laughs> Linda takes the statement at face value. Sometimes the floor does have a fist. Who knows? <laughs> it's sort of hard to tell in here. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so Isa was probably, like, the first one to get to the hallway, but the last one to actually walk in the room. She would have been maybe pacing outside a little bit for a while, and when she comes in, like, she's... Not necessarily shy, she doesn't present herself as shy, but like she's shy on the inside. So she just kind of like waves and waits for you guys to like finish the Eldritch Ice. She's not really quite sure how to introduce herself, but she's not going to be the first person to do it. Oh, I mean, I guess Rill is kind of like looking back at Zen's entrance and would see Isa. They would just wave at you, just like, hello. (laughs) Oh, hi there. I, you look vaguely familiar, but I'm not sure we've met. I'm Linda. It's so nice to meet you. Uh, hi. Yeah, I was at your last uh, book club meeting, but oh, I didn't that's right. really get a chance to say hi to everybody. This is like my second mission. Oh, well, welcome. Welcome. Here with... You still don't have a team name, so Linda just kind of gestures and says, Us! Nice to meet you, Us. Um, I'm Isa. I... I guess this egg thing is the Leviathan. That would be my best guess. I I don't know, Zen. Do you have uh, Do you have the deets? Zen waves her book in the air and says, "Yeah, that is a Leviathan, or at least a Leviathan egg." It says you're going to Earth. Oh, uh, which Earth? Yeah, do- yeah. I don't know about you. I well, I guess I'm not from Earth, but <laughs> look, the book says Earth. What do you mean, which Earth? Well, uh... I've definitely been to a couple of Earths by now. Zen's been in the library for a long time now and is still just like, I don't like this multi-universe <laughs> stuff. Well, it doesn't say which Earth, it just says Earth. Okay. Well, I, I guess hmm. we'll find out. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure Sweetgrass was Earth, but it wasn't my Earth. And, um, and well, that little odd thing I had, I met someone from Earth there, and there's definitely more than one Earth. So, we'll see, I guess. Fingers crossed. I hope it's a friendly one. So the egg is probably, like, three feet tall. So y'all are gonna have to, like, 
pick it up and carry it into the void Team with you. Team lift. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do we have like, um, shoot, what are those like baby backpacks? A Bjorn? Can we get like a Bjorn and put the egg in it? It would be like totally covering your face. Uh, yeah, that's fine. At least then we know it's... Well, it would have to be like a really big Bjorn. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Linda sometimes has her, her knitting stuff in her bag, so she's gonna like root around in there and pull out a bunch of yarn and be like, maybe we could make a like a sling for it? I, at least maybe two of us can carry it? Linda's gonna knit that egg a scarf right here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that's as good a... I mean, we could. I could try to find like a really big tote bag. I'm sure there's one around here somewhere. This egg is like three feet tall and thicker than that in circumference. So, so jeez. So yeah, Linda's gonna gonna try and as quickly as possible knit a kind of makeshift sling so that um, so that two people can kind of carry it between them. It's amazing. Yeah, L- Linda's a, a, a multi talented person. Didn't she learn to knit here in the library? She did. She's gotten really good at it. There's yeah, a lot of time in the library. Up some, like super knitting yeah, skills. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's this hyperbolic knitting chamber. She's got she's got like half a scarf knit already, so she kind of just like knits the end pieces. It was a really big scarf. <laughs> is that a scarf or a blanket? So I guess a blanket is the word for a really big scarf. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or or just a a scarf for your body. I a guess. Shawl? Yeah. There are just... words for these things. Yeah. No, it's all just scarves. Linda only knows how to make a scarf, so she makes scarves of various sizes. I guess, no, she made sweaters for Christmas. God damn it, I can't even remember our own canon. Yeah. So anyway, she has a half-finished piece, so she, like, knits the ends as quickly as she can to make a makeshift sling for the egg. While you're doing this, Zen is just, like, pulled a big, lazy armchair out of nowhere and is making herself comfortable there. This is probably trying to examine the egg. Like, seeing if it's warm, seeing if it's going to, like, start hatching anytime imminently while we're carrying it, that kind of thing. As you do that, the egg wiggles. It is very warm. You can feel something moving inside it. She sort of jumps back from it, like, okay, what is this? An egg. It's a leviathan. So I don't know about where you're from, but where I'm from, uh, usually you don't want to run into something called a leviathan, so maybe we should uh, get on with this. Uh, Yeah, Rill's already kind of gone over and picked up one end of the blanket scarf scooper, and and Dumpling's just on top of the egg, just like laying atop it. (laughs) Oh, that reminds me, before we go, uh, code word please, everybody. Dumpling. 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 Great. So Issa, when we get there, we're all just going to check in with each other real quick. All this odd stuff that's been going on, we just, you know, let's just avoid that if we can. Yeah, there's evil versions of ourselves, so we need a code word, uh, and that's our code word. Our code word is dumpling. Okay, got it. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, anything left for us then, or do we just pop on through? Looks like that's it. All right. All right. Let's go. Team lift. Um, Real tries to lift it with just their one end, and I guess <laughs> with the egg start tilting. Issa would quickly Linda. grab it and like help her load it into <laughs> the baby egg sling thing. <laughs> Linda's gonna keep a, a hand on the top so it doesn't like wiggle one way or another. <laughs> okay, so I guess uh, everybody goes on through the book drop then. Yep. So all together, you enter the void. It clings to you like a film over your skin. 
but it feels like nothing. The absence of feeling. It lasts less than a second, but it feels like an eternity. In that extended instant, you feel yourself being unmade, every molecule separating and rearranging before coming back to you, making you something new. And then you find yourself, quite suddenly, in a bright and vibrant new world. You smell, all around you, sweet honey and peach, flavorful aromas. And as far as your eye can see, you're surrounded by just teeming life. You're floating on a sea of thick leaves and branches, a treetop canopy. Many of these trees sport vast blossoms, pink flowers with petals as long as you are tall. The air is thick with the buzzing of insects, and in the distance you see fox-like creatures leaping above the canopy and back beneath it, like dolphins at sea. You are at sea, you realize, but not a sea like any you've seen before. Not an earth like any you've seen before. And since you are at sea, of course, you're on a ship. And that ship is as strange as anything else you've seen here. And that's where we'll pick up next time, here on the Eternity Archives. The Eternity Archives is hosted, produced, and edited by Dorka, Bappy, and Sifa. Find us on Twitter at, at @thearchivespod or online at theeternityarchives.com. Our intro music is Paint the Sky by Hans Adam, and sound effects are obtained from zapsplat.com. Check out our show notes for more information and some helpful resources. Consider supporting us by telling your friends about us, or leave us a tip at our Ko-fi page, ko-fi.com slash theeternityarchives. Subscribe to our Ko-fi for all sorts of exclusive bonuses, behind-the-scenes content, and other fun surprises. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Be gay! Roll dice! An LGBTQIA actual play podcast network.